and the second verse will sing six parts like we did at the last. <clears throat> Speaking of singing, I was thinking when Brother Mick was talking, I don't know if you looked over uh, ever in uh, Psalm 119 to verse 54, but David, talking about a love for God's law, he says, your statutes have been my songs. He loved God's law so much he loved to sing them. It would be like driving down the highway singing about the wonderful traffic laws. Uh, that's, how, that's how David felt about the law of God. He loved God's law to the point he, they were his songs. He just loved God's law. Okay, so much for that. All right, two times through, second time, six parts. No, be thou faithful unto death, and I will give thee a crown of life, a glorious crown of life. Now six parts. Be thou Death and I will give thee a crown of life, a glorious crown of life. I couldn't help but add a couple comments to what Brother Nick said. Nick said it, it is so true. Uh, how many of you have ever read William Law's classic, uh, Serious Call to a Devout and Holy Life? How many have ever read that book? Well, I suggest that somebody get copies of that. I don't know if it could be done before the week is out. <laughs> Probably not. You really should read the book. Uh, when he was speaking, I was thinking, I think it's chapter 2 in that book. The title of it is Spiritual Intent. Uh, and what he says in that uh, chapter is exactly what Mick was telling you this morning that you are just as spiritual as you intend to be. That's, the, that's his theme. You're just as spiritual as you intend to be. So if you see somebody who's a spiritual person, if you actually did some investigation, you would find that that didn't just happen. And if you see somebody who's not a spiritual person and you did some investigation, you will find that did not just happen. We are as spiritual as we intend to be. Or as my dad always said, another thing to add to what he was talking about, my dad said, you make your decisions, and then your decisions make you. And I think that's what I was hearing through the message this morning. You make your decisions, and your decisions make you, uh, which is reminiscent of my favorite verse in the Old Testament, which is Proverbs 4.23. Keep thy heart with all diligence, for out of it are the issues of life. And then if you read the succeeding verses, watch what you say, watch where you go, Watch what you see. Watch what you feed into your heart because you will condition the desires of your heart by the things that you do. And so those were the things that were going through my mind as Brother Mick was preaching. He certainly was 100% on target. You can be as spiritual as you want to be. Shall we pray? Father, we thank you this morning for the wonderful laws of the soul that you have made clear to us and have provided us with all the resources we need and all the power that we need to appropriate those laws. And we can determine by your grace, not our own strength,
by your grace, your revelation, your truth, your wisdom, all the things you've given to us, we can appropriate those to be the person that you intended for us to be. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Now, we're going to do our memory, and I do have this memorized, but I have found that <laughs> I, when I try to lead it, uh, I, if I, I mix up a word or two, and then that throws everybody off. So I'm going to read it as you quote it. Uh, but if you came and asked me, I can quote this. Uh, so believe me. All right? I might have to stop and think a little bit, but see, when you're up here leading the quote, you can't stop and think. <laughs> so, okay, here we go. Simon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to them that have obtained like precious faith with us through the righteousness of God and our Savior Jesus Christ, grace and peace be multiplied unto you through the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord, according as his divine promise, uh, see there it is, according as his divine power hath given unto us all things that pertain unto life and godliness through the knowledge of him that hath called us to glory and virtue. Hey, you did a great job. All right, well, let's uh, do down through verse, uh, well, let's see, down through verse 6 tomorrow. All right, down through verse 6. All right, now back to, back to the outline. I didn't quite get finished yesterday. I think uh, what I have to say in conclusion would also face, uh, fit uh, back to the facts. We talked about the remarkable resources, and then we talked about the reasonable response. <clears throat> and the point that I tried to make yesterday that I don't want you to forget is that the resources are all there, and they will be behind every effort you make to move uh, in the direction God wants you to go. But you have to make decisions. And those decisions are a matter of faith that God will indeed support your decisions to obey him, no matter how unlikely it may seem, no matter how difficult it may seem, no matter how um, uh, other people don't agree, God will back you up with all those resources. But you have to activate those resources by the decisions that you make. And that's why he says, give all diligence to add these things. They won't just happen. They will happen only to the person who has put due diligence behind the practice of the things that he's talking about. All right. So, we have the realistic results. Years ago, there was a man in our community... He was not a great Bible teacher. I remember he grew up, in, he was an older man in the church I grew up in. He, he was not an eloquent person at all. I can't just say he ever had any great ministry. And something happened in his experience that he never found out. He died before what I'm going to describe to you. But 28 years ago, well, I guess now it's like 30 years ago, he was picking apples in an orchard. And there was a migrant, well, no, he wasn't a migrant worker. He actually was a, a criminal. Uh, who had just been released from prison, was picking apples with him. And I called this man this morning to, to get this story accurate because I knew what had happened. This older man simply said one thing to this, this man that was picking apples with him, who had two failed marriages, was a sex offender, had spent time in prison, and was a vicious person. 
who, if you disagreed with him, he would actually physically cause problems. And this older man said to him, where will you spend eternity? That's all he said. And Patrick Matthews, if you live and know our community, was the man I'm talking about. And I called him this morning, and he said, when he told me that, it made me so angry. She said, he said, I normally would have hauled off and hit him in the face. That's how angry I was. He said, I did not receive that at all. But he said, it stuck in my mind. 28 years later, he decided to act on that thought. And I wish you'd live in our community and see the influence that man is. That older man had no idea what effect he had on this person who at the time gave no indication whatsoever he heard what he said. And I, <clears throat> I'm saying all that to, to emphasize what he says next. He says, if you add to your faith virtue and to virtue knowledge and to knowledge temperance and to temperance patience and to patience uh, godliness and to godliness brotherly love and to brotherly love charity, if you go down through that whole list and come out with a true heart of love poured out on the world, you will not be unfruitful. You will not be unfruitful. It's a promise. He said, if these things be in you and abound, you will be fruitful. You might not see the fruit like this man that I just described to you, but that influence on that one person, and I have to tell you a little bit about Matthew, uh, Patrick Matthews. He is determined to have an influence on the whole city of Chambersburg. He started a halfway house single-handedly. He started a food kitchen almost single-handedly. He started a Bible study for homeless people almost single-handedly and has been a tremendous influence in our community from the testimony of one man who said, where will you spend eternity to a person who didn't receive it for 28 years? So I'm just telling you, God has promised that his word will not return unto him void. And if you live that word and you preach that word and you teach that word, you will be fruitful. It it says this. uh, Let's look at it here. It says, verse 8, for if these things be in you and abound... And we learned that that word means unlimited. The word, the prefix ah means not. Ah moral means not moral. Uh, abound means no bounds, okay? He says, if you, if you allow those things to abound, not just a stingy participation in these things, but, but just let them abound in you, you will be fruitful, he says. You will not be unfruitful in the, you shall be neither barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, the person of Jesus Christ will be very prominent in your experience, and you will be a fruitful person. Okay? But then he warns us. He says, but he that lacketh these things, if you don't give all diligence, if you don't add these things to your life, you will be blind and you will forget that you were purged from your sins. Now, you might wonder, what does that mean? Well, I want you to turn back to Romans chapter 6. This is, uh, everybody likes Romans 8. I like Romans 8 too, but I especially like Romans 6 because Romans 6 is the explanation of what happens in Romans 8. (laughs) Okay. And I want to look at verse 7. For he that is dead is freed from sin. 
Okay? Verse 9. Knowing that Christ being raised from the dead dieth no more, death hath no more dominion over him. And when we are dead to sin, sin has no more dominion over us. And so he says, if you lack these things, it's because you have forgotten that your old man is dead. He can no longer dominate you. If somebody does you wrong, you can decide to hold a grudge. And you can make that decision and you can hold a grudge. But you can also decide to forgive the person and you will get all the resources of heaven. Because there's nobody in you anymore who can make you sin. All right? Now, there's a lot of dispute about Romans chapter 6. What does it mean about the old man dying? And some people say, well, he's rendered ineffective. I'm sorry. You don't bury people to render them ineffective. You bury them because they're dead. I tell people, please don't bury me to make me ineffective. So what is it that dies? Because we still struggle with sin, obviously. Well, what dies is the master that makes you sin. He's not there anymore. There's a new master. And if you make a decision, he's there to help you to do what's right, just like that old master was there to make you do wrong. And he says, if you don't add these things to your life, you have forgotten that you have a new master and you will let that other master begin to usurp his authority in your life again. That's basically what he's saying. So he's saying, if you don't add, you will actually regress because you're not acting on the reality that has come into your life that all the resources of heaven are now behind you. The old master is dead. There's nothing there to make you sin anymore. You can actually make a good decision and you can prosper. Now, this is serious. It goes right along with what Brother Mick was was, uh, impressing upon us this morning. We have decisions to make. And he says, the person who does not add to these things, becomes blind and cannot see afar off. So here you are. Well, okay. Here is the goal. Christ-likeness. In the first place, we need to correct one idea about what it's all about. Most of the preaching I heard most of my life would have given me the impression the whole point is to get to heaven. That's what I heard. You need to repent, get saved, so you can go to heaven. Well, that is certainly true. Please don't go out here and say, I don't believe that. I do believe that. But that's not what the emphasis is. Jesus, at the end of Matthew chapter 5, says, Be ye perfect, even as your Father in heaven is perfect. Paul says, I labor, agonize, to present every man perfect in Christ. Paul says, I have not attained, but I press toward the mark. For the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. The goal of Christianity is perfection. The goal of Christianity is Christ-likeness. That's the goal of Christianity. And uh, so put that out there. And then we're going to find later in the lesson, uh, this is the past. This is history. And between a knowledge of the past and between the goal in front of us, we can make decisions. Because all over the place we have decisions to make. And we make decisions that fit the past perspective and the future goal. It's not that difficult. If if you're willing to learn from history, which he's going to talk about, 
and you also have this goal of Christ-likeness, and you have all the resources of heaven behind you to make the right decisions and to have those decisions prosper so that you become increasingly like Jesus. All right, so he says here, you're going to be memorizing it, he says, uh, but he that lacketh these things is blind and cannot see afar off and hath forgotten that he was purged from his old sins. By the way, blindness does not mean you can't see anything at all. That's what we think blindness is. Well, if I'm driving down the highway and all of a sudden I have something happen and I completely lose my sight, I'm going to inch my way off into the shoulder of the road and I'm going to stop. But if I'm driving along the highway and all of a sudden something crazy happens and the ditch looks like the road and the road looks like the ditch, I'm in trouble. And that's what he says. He says that the person who has not added these things, cannot see rightly. He cannot see afar off. He's, he's completely taken up with the things in the immediate present. He does not have this perspective. So spiritual blindness is spiritual myopia. It's spiritual nearsightedness. It doesn't have any perspective. I'm trying to show you how important it is that you keep adding to these... these uh, uh, this experience. It's through the knowledge of Christ and of God. And then the last thing he says is, uh, give all diligence to make your calling and election sure. Yes, you will have problems with assurance of salvation. He says, but, but if you do these things, you will have a certainty about your standing with God. You will make your calling and election sure. For so an entrance shall be ministered unto you abundantly into the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. I think that has a present and a future application. Uh, The whole point of Christianity is, yes, Christ-likeness, but the, the, the gospel message is the kingdom. And we all want to become part of that kingdom. Uh, back to what I was saying about the goal about getting to heaven. It's interesting, I one time thought about it. You know, when you read the epistles, you're not reading about getting to heaven. You're reading about building up the body of Christ. You're, building about, you're, you're reading about uh, how you can be a, a, an important part of the kingdom of God. And so, my personal salvation is not a means to get to heaven. It's a means to qualify me to be part of the kingdom. God wants a kingdom on this earth that demonstrates what he always wanted. A society of people who show to a lost world what a a godly society looks like. In the Old Testament, God wanted a nation to show all the nations of the world what a nation looks like whose God is the Lord. They didn't do too well, but they did well enough that the Queen of Sheba came one time and she said, I heard about this nation in my own land. I did not believe what I heard, but I came and I found out I wasn't even told the half. There is no nation who has law so just. There's no people who are so happy. There's not a nation in the world that has a, that, that has a beautiful uh, system of equity and where people live the way they should. And, and she was impressed. And now Peter tells us in Peter 1, he says, you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood. We're going back to the Old Testament. These are things that were said back there. You are a chosen generation. You are a royal priesthood. You are a holy nation. You are a peculiar, favored people that you should show forth the praise of him who has called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. The whole point, my folks, is the corporate expression of the gospel, the church, if you please. 
And it's too long that we've all been individualistically trying to get to heaven. And God says, it's not about getting to heaven. I want you to bring heaven to earth and demonstrate that to your generation. I want you to show what the whole world would look like. And here in Harmony Christian Fellowship, this is the attitude you should have about your church. I want you to show in your relationships, in your little community, what the whole world would look like if everybody obeyed Jesus. And he said, if you add to these virtues, you will, be ended, you will enter abundantly into that experience and be a wonderful contributing member of that kingdom. And not only that, you will be part of the everlasting kingdom. People call me on the billboard line. They say, what do you, I have to do to get to heaven? I don't know what you would tell them. You know what I tell them? You have to join Christ's kingdom of heaven here. And that completely changes the conversation. Well, what's that about? And then I begin to talk about the Sermon on the Mount. And I begin to talk about how people should live in that kingdom. And then they say to me, well, the only people I know that live that way are the Amish and the Mennonites. So they give us a good rating. (laughs) We have all kinds of criticisms about us. But the world somehow sees that here is a people that are serious about the kingdom of God, even though maybe they don't understand much about it. But they, they see that. And that's what God wants. He wants the whole community to know here is, here is a city set on a hill. Here is a, finally a community that is what God intended. Because they have a group of people who are adding to their, their uh, faith, virtue, and all of those characteristics by the supernatural resources that God has given us. Okay, so, stories told of an old missionary. And this is a true story. Had been in Africa somewhere all his life. He and his wife served there. And they, they finally were so old that people forgot they were there. They had a faith mission. Uh, apparently, they weren't sent to any church, but just had been supported through the years by gifts of people. And uh, so they finally, in their old age, had to return to the United States. And their ship came in to San Francisco. But on the ship was Teddy Roosevelt, who had been to Africa on a safari. And so he was there with all his prize animals that he had had killed, and he was bringing them home. And he got off the ship. He was the president. And there was a ticker ticker tape parade. And down through San Francisco, they marched, uh, celebrating uh, Teddy Roosevelt, who had been in Africa for two whole weeks. And here was this group of these two people that had been there all their lives, had just poured out their whole life. And there they stood on the ship, and there was nobody there to welcome them. And the whole crowd had gone after the president. And for just a moment, the old missionary said to his wife, it isn't fair. He goes to Africa for two weeks, and look what he gets. We spend our whole life in Africa, and look what we get. And she said, honey, we are not home yet. This talks about an abundant entrance into the kingdom of heaven. I wish I could remember what Brother Denny said about this, but he pictured this glorious reception that we're going to get <laughs> at the end. Okay. So, fruitfulness, a sense of direction in life, and assurance, and a final celebration, if we will add to our faith. I love this passage of Scripture. Okay. Back to the facts. 2 Peter 1, 12 to 21. Let me read this. Wherefore, because of this, I will not be negligent to put you always in remembrance of these things, though you know them. Hmm, that's interesting. Why would you have to remember, cause somebody to remember something they know? And be established in the present truth. 
Yea, I think it meet as long as I'm in this tabernacle to stir you up by putting you in remembrance, knowing that shortly I must put off this my tabernacle even as our Lord Jesus Christ has showed me. And Jesus had told him in John 21, someday you're going to be carried by other people. It was a picture of Peter's final death of crucifixion. And he said, the Lord told me I'm soon going to leave. Moreover, I will endeavor that ye may be able after my decease to have these things always in remembrance. Notice his emphasis. Three times he talks about making sure they remember. Now, why was he saying this? Because Gnosticism was already beginning to have his appeal. And he was seeing the ungodly living that people who forgot the truth got themselves into. It was a little bit like Moses. I don't know if you noticed, but at the end of Moses' life, he wrote the book of Deuteronomy. And that book of Deuteronomy is a desperate attempt to help people remember. In fact, God said to Moses, write a song. Deuteronomy 32, I wish you'd read that song. And he had the whole nation singing this song. It's a song about their unfaithfulness and what will happen if they're not faithful to God. People my age are concerned about what happens to the truth after we leave the scene. And that's one of the reasons I keep preaching my heart out. And I'm a little bit like uh, Mick said, I am so grateful for you people. People my age are starting to look at where is this, who are the leaders in the next generation? Who are the people who are articulating the truth? Who are the people who are going to carry this message on? And that's Peter's concern, my concern. And so he says, "I, I need to tell you something. Before he goes into the next chapter, which is a scathing, rebuke to ungodly living. He's explaining now what it is they can't forget. So we better pay pretty careful attention to what he says in these next verses. He said, this is what I'm reminding you of because I see what's going to happen. And this is the only antidote that will keep it from happening. And so here's what he says. For we have not followed cunningly devised fables when we made known unto you the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but were eyewitnesses of his majesty. I just want to make a comment right here at the beginning. All people who go into apostasy have lost their vision of who Jesus is. The liberal church out there have reduced Jesus to just a good example. If you start talking about his divinity, you start talking about his resurrection, they will say, oh, well, <laughs> you know, I, yeah, I don't believe that stuff. But Jesus is a good example. I, I love to follow his teachings. And I say, well, there you have a problem. Because Jesus said he was divine. And if he wasn't who he said he was, then you shouldn't be paying any attention to his teachings. Because if I went up and down the streets of the local town and told people I was Julius Caesar, they wouldn't say, uh, he has good teaching." They'd say, this guy's nuts, he's a danger to society, let's put him in prison, or a mental institution. But that's what they do to Jesus. They minimize who he really is. And Peter is saying that unless you people keep it clear in your mind that he was the Son of God, he was divine, he rose from the dead, he is Lord of all, and you need to respect his authority and obey him. Unless you keep that in mind, what I'm going to describe to you is going to happen. And we can't make enough out of who Jesus is. That's the most crucial question that you can ever ask. Do you really believe that he's the Son of God? 
Do you really believe that he rose from the dead? Do you really believe he validated his message so that you need to pay attention to what he said because he has the authority above all other authorities? Do you really believe that about Jesus? If you don't, then you do what the liberal churches have done. You basically minimize everything he said. You can be a member of some of the most conservative, Bible-believing churches out there, and you can be divorced and remarried, and you can go to court and swear oaths, and you can go to war and kill people, and you can accumulate wealth, and you can drive a new Cadillac and build yourself a dream house on a hill because you have your ticket to heaven that you got by praying a little sinner's prayer. You can just ignore everything Jesus said. That's serious. And I grew up in a church that was a very plain Mennonite church that has done just that. Most of what I've said, including the going to war, going to war and killing people. The pastor's son at Desert, Desert Storm in the early 90s, son marched off to the, to the army. And he was brokenhearted. He couldn't figure out why. It's because Jesus had been diminished and his authority had been rationalized away. And so Peter is saying... If you want to keep the awful things from happening that we're going to talk about tomorrow, you need to make sure that you don't in any way minimize who Jesus is and the authority that he has over your life. So let's read. What does he say? He says, what I'm telling you about Jesus is not cunningly devised fables. There are a lot of cunningly devised fables. Read the Book of Mormon cunningly devised fables. People ask me, what do you think of the Book of Mormon? And I say, well, the problem is nobody has ever found any evidence that those people in those places ever existed. And yet people believe it. And they believe crazy things. They believe that we're all, can become gods, that uh, Eve did the right thing in the Garden of Eden by listening to the devil because he taught human beings they could be gods. And if we really go through the Mormon rituals, we can all become gods. And when we die, we can all have our universe and be a god of our own universe. Come on. That's what happens when people minimize the true gospel of Jesus Christ by adding other things and cunningly devised fables and imaginations. And Peter said, we didn't do that. Or or the Greek passion or the uh, mystery plays that they had. What they would do is they they would psych these people up with all kinds of songs and atmospheres and so on and so forth. And then they put on this play where there was a God that died and rose from the dead. And and the whole point was to get you to identify with that God because you say, I am him. I'm I'm part of him. Cunningly devised fables. Peter said, no, wait a minute. We didn't do any of that. What we told you was sober truth and reality. And I can't keep reading for some reason, so let's keep going here. For we have not followed cunningly devised fables when we made known unto you the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but were eyewitnesses of his majesty. Just mark that down. They were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For he received from God the Father honor and glory when there came such a voice to him from the excellent glory. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. See how he's emphasizing who Jesus is? That's the antidote. If you ever start messing around in your Christian life, it'll be that to some extent you have diminished the authority of Jesus and who he really is. And this voice which came from heaven, we heard. See, we saw it with our eyes. We heard it with our ears. 
when we were with him in the Holy Mount. That's the transfiguration where God spoke out of the cloud. This is my beloved son, hear ye him. We have also a more sure word of prophecy. Wherefore, unto you do well that you take heed, as unto a light that shineth in a dark place, until the day dawn and the day star arise in your hearts. Knowing this, first, that no prophecy of the scriptures of any private interpretation, for the prophets, prophecy came not in old time by the will of man, but holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. You see the burden here. What we told you about Jesus is sober reality. Don't mess with the reality. So, what happens? Well, a couple years ago, a conservative Mennonite church brought their statement of faith to me. And they said, you're a copy editor. We think this has some copy, some stylistic errors. We'd like for you to make this a, a good statement, stylistically. And it was actually the statement of faith that I grew up under. But I had never read it carefully. But now I'm reading it as a copy editor. And I'm seeing a tremendous emphasis on the scriptures. But there was no statement in the whole statement of faith about Jesus as Lord. And I thought, could it be that I was raised with a focus on the scriptures, which that's wonderful if it leads you to understand Jesus and follow him, which is what the scriptures are all about. Could it be that I was raised and we got stuck in the scriptures and ran around with verses, you know, and forgot about being Christ-like. Could it be that we miss Jesus by trying to be scriptural? I hope you understand what I'm saying. I believe in being scriptural. If you're Christ-like, you will be scriptural. There'll be no scripture that you violate. But you can be scriptural and not have your focus on Jesus. And I'll give you an example. Go to a typical lecture on the Bible or the gospel, and economics. And when you've finished hearing all of that, it'll sound like a scriptural defense of the American dream, that you should get more and more together so you have more and more to give and you accumulate all of this, uh, whatever. And then you stop and you say, is that what Jesus said? Is that what Jesus did? No. But somebody tried to convince you that what they said was scriptural. I hope you're getting my point. The scriptures are a revelation of Christ. They are a means to an end. God never intended for them to be an end in themselves. They are to help us be like Jesus. And in that happening, we can never lose sight of the fact that that's what the scriptures are all about. And to study any scripture that is not in relation to Jesus and his example and his teachings is to misunderstand the scriptures. I hope I'm making myself clear. The only, the only way for people to remain faithful to Christ is to put him in his proper place, to finally have the focus on him, to want more than anything else in the world to be like him, to be driven by a passion for that, and to hang on every word he said and everything he did and make their whole life conform to it. That's what it's all about. And it's amazing how quickly we can get sidetracked. The fundamental, I'll tell you what happened to the Mennonite church. 
The fundamentalist movement was a movement back to the Bible. It was not a movement back to Jesus. Jesus, by the, by the typical uh, uh, evangelical mind, lived a perfect life so he could be a perfect sacrifice. And N.T. Wright says that the problem with Reformed theology is that they have an empty cloak. Read the Apostles' Creed. It talks about Jesus, his birth, his death, and resurrection. I'm sorry, Jesus, his birth, and then it skips to his death and resurrection. Well, what about all those passages in between? I mean, in the Apostles' Creed, you have about the first two chapters of Matthew and the last two chapters of Matthew, the first two chapters of Luke and the last two cha- couple chapters of Luke. What about all those verses in between? John 17, Jesus said, uh, well, let's turn to that. I want you to see that. This is amazing how this has happened. To, in, our own, in our own thinking, if we're not careful. John 17. Verse 4. I have glorified thee on the earth. That was before the cross. I have finished the work which thou gavest me to do. Oh. If you ask most people, do you believe in, if, if somebody asked me, do you believe in the finished work of Christ? My standard answer is, which finished work are you talking about? He came here and lived out a perfect human life to show us the lost potential for humanity and what we can regain by what he did at the end when he conquered selfishness and sin and we now can live the way God intended for us to live. But he lived that whole thing out and then he finished that. That was, that was the first finished work of Christ to demonstrate, glorify God on the earth and demonstrate true humanity. You won't hear anybody talk about that. When they say finished work of Christ, they mean when he said on the cross, it is fin-, and that was a finished work. But so was his work that he did before that. That is missing in the Apostles' Creed. That is missing in Reformed theology. In fact, N.T. Wright says the problem with Protestantism is they never figured out what to do with the Gospels. Because what they finally come up with doesn't fit. Dean Taylor calls it salvation by theology. It's getting all your ideas right about the theology of the Gospels. But you notice that James, uh, Peter said, if you do these things, it's not a matter of believing with your mind, it's a matter of actually obeying Jesus. I know this is a simple message and probably I'm preaching, I hope I'm preaching to the choir. But this is my concern. So, Reality remembered. Let's just talk about this a little bit. You know, it's important that we, that we have the right understanding of things. Somebody has said this, what we don't know we can't understand, what we don't understand we can't believe, and what we don't believe we can't receive, and what we don't receive we can't possess. So it's, it's important that we have knowledge to act upon, and I've been trying to give that to you. Let's talk about reality remember. That's the first point here, and we have to move along. The word remember is used 270 times, five times in the Bible. And we sing that song, Tell Me the Old, Old Story, for I Forget So Soon. Truth loses its force if it is not refreshed. All right? These people were established in the truth. Peter said, you're on the right track. But remember, and don't forget 
what you now understand. Our flesh and our feelings move us away from the truth. Somebody asked me on the billboard line, he was, trying, he was an atheist, and I was, of course, a believer, and so we were having it back and forth. And he finally, and it was a friendly conversation, one of the things we try to do on the billboard line is make sure everybody knows that, that we're friendly people and that we don't do, say harsh and ugly things. So we were having a friendly conversation. After a bit, he said, I wrote it down so I could quote it exactly. Is there anything that would cause you to lose your belief? What would it take for you to quit believing what you believe? I said, yes. I said, all it would take is for me to decide that I wanted, for some reason, to disobey Jesus. I'm an old man. And I start getting worried about what's going to happen to me, so I start to accumulate some wealth, some security for the future. To me, I'm not saying to you, but to me that would be disobedience to what Jesus said. But then you know what I would do? I would rationalize what Jesus said. I would make what Jesus said fit what I had decided to do. How many understand what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. I told him that's what it would take. It would take a practical life decision that I would make against Jesus' teachings and I would start eventually to eat away at those teachings to make it fit what I want. And that's why people go to war and that's why people swear oaths and that's why people accumulate wealth and that's why people divorce and remarry and that's why they do any one of a number of things that Jesus said no to. They have rationalized. We are masters of being able to rationalize. You know, in biology, we studied homeostasis, which means that the body tries everything it can to keep the chemistry balanced in the body. Morally, we do that too. We don't like to think we're wrong. So when we do things we know that are wrong, our mind gets busy, and we are masters at this, figuring out that the wrong we did actually was right. Suppose my wife were dying. I'll give you an example. Suppose she were dying of an excruciating disease. And she was so miserable that no pain medication would touch it. And the doctor would say, she will be dead in five days. No question. Her life is over. And here she is, and I cannot relieve her pain. I could very easily rationalize the best thing to do would be to get her out of her pain. And that's where the whole euthanasia thing comes from. People using that kind of rationale. But that's not what God said. So the, the great danger of our belief in Christ is our moral commitments. And, and yes, so he said, I want you to remember. I want you to always remember the absolute revelation of the real person of Jesus Christ. So that's reality remembered. Let's move on to reality ratified. Peter's amazing proposition as to who Jesus is is not just a flight of exuberant fancy. It's not just cunningly devised fables. He says that the Jesus that he's presenting is the Jesus of true history. I want to read you what somebody has said about the liberals who have minimized who Jesus is. If one is to judge the historicity of Jesus, then he ought to be judged as impartially as any other figure in history. F.F. Bruce says, 
that the historicity of Jesus is as axiomatic, that means it's just as obviously true, for an unbiased historian as the historicity of Julius Caesar. It is not the historians who propagate the Christ myth uh, theories. The earliest propagators of Christianity, and Peter's telling us this, welcomed the fullest investigation of the credentials of their message. Paul said there were over 500 people saw him rise from the dead, and most of those people are still living. He was inviting his hearers to go talk to those people to get an eyewitness report to certify that that actually happened. And, and all of the apostles had that attitude. The events that they proclaimed were, as Paul said to King Agrippa, were not done in a corner. And were well able to bear all the light that could be thrown upon them. The spirit of these early Christians ought to animate their modern descendants. For by an acquaintance with the relevant evidence, they will not only be able to give to everyone who asks of them a reason for the hope that is in them, but they themselves, like Theophilus, will thus know more accurately how secure is the basis of the faith which they have been taught about Christ. You hear what he's saying? It's not the historians who have any doubts about who Jesus is. It's the liberal theologians. The history is absolutely solid evidence. They ask me, how can you prove that Jesus was who he said he was? How can you prove the resurrection? And I say, well, you want to hear some evidence? Christianity began in Jerusalem with thousands of believers. They either were stupid or naive or something, but they all believed the truth about the man. Number two, you had 11 apostles after Judas defected. They didn't believe in the resurrection. They weren't prepared for it. They, 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 they were thrown off course by it. But Jesus appeared to them. They touched him. They ate with him. They saw him. They spent time with him. And they became convinced that Jesus had risen from the dead. And then they were all tortured. And then they were all put to a martyr's death except one. And Chuck Colson says that was what convinced him. He said, during the Watergate scandal that he was involved in, he said, we all lied till the prosecution began. And we weren't even tortured. But we all changed our story to save our skin. And the apostles never did that. Number three, you have the gospel writer Luke. People say to me, where's the documentary of this? I said, you're going to say it's not valid because it's in the Bible. But because it's in the Bible doesn't mean it's not a documentary. Luke is the only Greek writer of the New Testament. He wrote one-third of the New Testament. He wrote the book of Luke and the book of Acts. And he says at the beginning, Theophilus, I have carefully searched out this story as a historian. And I'm writing to you so you can know the certainty of what we believe. And critics have camped on Luke's writings Was he an accurate historian? What about the people he mentions? What about the geographies he mentions? What about the uh, 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 context? What about everything Luke says that we can factually verify? And they say he was a very accurate historian. So then I think we have to take him seriously, what he said about Jesus. And besides that, I I tell these people this. Then you have the rise of... of, uh, Christianity, in spite of desperate attempts of the Roman Empire to squash it before it ever began. And it not only survived, but within 200 years it won the heart of the Roman Empire without lifting a sword. They did it by serving and by dying and proving that there was a resurrection life that defied any human explanation. Now I said, that's enough evidence for me to believe the story. 
and to believe who Jesus really is. And like I said, the historians will not dispute what I just told you, but the liberal theologians will. And don't you ever let anybody minimize your concept that Jesus is the Son of God, he is divine, he rose from the dead, he has the authority over our lives. And just simply to make sure that you feel good about that, he loves you. (laughs) And he wants your best. And he will never ask you to do anything except what is the very best for you. All right. This reality was ratified by the transfiguration. We read that. Uh, They saw it with their eyes. They gazed upon him. They saw the glory, as John says, as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. These writers go out of their way to say this is open to a full investigation. It was not done in a corner. There are living witnesses. Here's a documentary. It's absolutely certain who Jesus was. It's not to be disputed. Peter had just refused to believe what Jesus had said about his suffering and death. Brother Mick has been talking about that. But he's now convinced of the absolute veracity of what Jesus said. All right? The attempts to separate the gospel from historical reality must be steadfastly resisted. The modern mind rebels against the miraculous account of his divinity and his resurrection. They want to see the story of Christ as a hero myth about a remarkable and inspiring human character. That's what they want. Then they want to follow his example in a general and comfortable way. Thomas Jefferson admired Jesus. He took the Gospels and cut out all the miraculous parts and then got up every morning and read Jesus' moral statements as a great inspiration. Vance Havner said, if the historical Jesus is a myth then we can expect to be mistaken, mythified, and mitherable. <laughs> I'm, I'm trying to make this very clear because if you start making any moral commitments that violate what Jesus said, you will go down this road of questioning who he really was and how authoritative his statements are, and you will rationalize them. The other thing that convinced Peter was the prophecies. He says, we have a a sure word of prophecy. There are 300 specific messianic prophecies fulfilled to the letter in the Old Testament. And there are many accounts of people who were converted just observing that. Paul confidently and convincingly preached Christ from these Old Testament scriptures. And the transfiguration experience confirmed the truth of those prophecies. Which is something else I want to say. Truth always confirms itself. You had the prophecies, and then you had these confirmations. When people talk to me about various things, I ask one question. Is this historical Christianity? I'll give you an example. There was a teaching that arose in the holiness movement that grew out of the Wesleyan movement that you can have a second experience that will eradicate the sin nature, and you will live without any sin after that. I wish. I would run to the nearest meeting to have that experience, if it were true. But I ask the people who teach that, where do you find that in the history of the church? It's not there. Well, then it's not true. If it's not historical Christianity, if it has not been the testimony of the church down through its history, then truth is not being confirmed. 
I'm going to stand on the truth that has been confirmed by the church all through the years. And I'm going to question the prosperity gospel. Where's that in history? And by the way, go tell that to a third world country, that if you give more out of your starving wages, that you'll be blessed and you'll get rich anyway. Well, reality realized. Now he says, not only do we have reality, the reality of Jesus confirmed, prophesied, transfiguration, uh, all of that, but you can test it yourself, okay? You can experience this in your own life. Now, when I talk to people who are skeptical, I don't give this ahead of time because they say, oh, that's subjective. You could have had that same experience by conjuring stuff up in your own mind. I give this last. And they don't ever dispute personal testimony. They say, well, that's all very nice that that happened to you, blah, 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 blah. Well, anyway, you can have the experience of what I've just talked about. You can have it confirmed in your own experience. Look what he says. He says, that we have a more sure word of prophecy. You do well that you take heed to that prophecy. And a light that shines in a dark place will arise in your hearts. And you will have your own confirmation. And here's my story. I tried for years to overcome some things in my life that I saw were going in the wrong direction. And there came a day when I was so miserable, I could take you to the place where I grew up and I could show you the spot out behind the barn where I finally fell on my knees and said, Jesus, you can have it all. Whatever you say. And I tell people I didn't see any lights and no angels appeared. All I know is I got up off my knees and something had come into my life that gave me the power to move in the direction that God wanted me to go. And that has never failed me for the past 55 years. And when I tell people that on the telephone, they say, well, that's very nice. I say, no, it's not just very nice. That's reality. The reality was I proved I could not do it on my own. I proved that when I surrendered to Jesus as Lord, he began to do it in my life. And that's what Peter is saying. You can have your own confirmation of the truth in your own heart. These are not mere human words. Our experience points to the reality of Christ in our own experience. And finally, the reality revealed. The prophets did not will their own message. They did not write what they wished. You know, there's some people do that. They say, oh, Jesus told me to take off my covering. My comment on that is some people cannot tell the difference between the rumblings of their belly and the movement of the Holy Spirit. (laughs) You can easily mistake a strong feeling for something you want to something God's telling you. But back to the testimony. Go back to the word. The word, Jesus Christ. Go back to what he said. Don't trust that feeling unless... It conforms to what we have been clearly told. And I'll tell you how this works. My mother had an aunt who married a Methodist. And she told her family, she said, I will can never quit wearing my covering, even though I'm the only person in that Methodist church that wears it. And she wore it for years. 
And then somehow she quit wearing it. And then one day she was cleaning out, uh, cleaning the house, and she took a yardstick under one of the cabinets, and out came a tract on the covering. And she announced her family, God is telling me that he really does expect me to wear this. So she put it back on again. And then toward the end of her life, she got sick and ended up in the hospital, and nobody paid any attention to her covering, and she wasn't wearing it. And Uncle Frank told the family, now when mom comes home, don't you say a word to her about that covering. And she never wore it after that. And that can happen that easily. And so, these people did not write their own message. They wrote as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. They were simply vessels carried along like a ship with a sail. And they simply were moved along by the Holy Spirit as they wrote. I think many times they were writing their own experience. But the Holy Spirit was there to make sure that that experience was written in a way that it would be timeless, eternal truth without any errors. And not only is it given by the Holy Spirit, it's also interpreted by the Holy Spirit. The scriptures are not a private interpretation. If you come up with some idea from the scriptures that nobody has ever said before, like the health, wealth, the prosperity gospel, or like the second work of grace, or any one of a number of things, and you never heard anybody confirm that, that's a private interpretation. If the church The historical church does not confirm what you're hearing from God. You're not hearing from God. That's what he's saying. The Holy Spirit places us in the same stream of understanding and experience by historic Christianity and the testimony of our brethren. So let's get back to the facts. Let's get back to the facts. And let's experience the supernatural life that's pictured here. Shall we bow our heads for a word of prayer? Father, we thank you so much for the abundant life that is possible if we never minimize the person of Christ, his authority, and our commitment to make his will number one in our life without any compromise, without any rationalizing, and that we would make Christ's likeness and a perfect character our goal, though we never completely attain it, you love the passion toward that goal. So just help us all to have that fire kindled in our hearts and that it would burn there to the very end. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Tomorrow we'll talk about the consequences of not doing what we talked about today. And they're pretty drastic.